My name is Wyatt. I'm one of the pastors here at Ignite, and I'm really excited to get to share God's word with you this morning. Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Uh, please use one of those. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, take that one home. It's, it's our gift to you. In those Bibles, we'll be starting on page 522. We're continuing our series on the book of Ecclesiastes, which is about a man called the preacher who was rich, wise, and powerful, but he still struggled to find fulfillment. He seemed to have it all, but realized that having riches, wisdom, and power didn't guarantee him happiness and meaning. The main message has been repeated by the preacher throughout the book, and that is hevel, hevel, everything is hevel. That word hevel, translated in the ESV as vanity, is a Hebrew word that means vapor or smoke. The preacher uses this word as a metaphor to describe how life is fleeting and temporary, but also that life is an enigma. We think we understand it, but when we try to reach out and grasp it, it slips through our fingers. You're enjoying the good gifts of life, and all of a sudden something tragic happens and it all seems to blow away like a smoke. That's Hevel. Or the fact that a lot of us have a, a strong sense of justice, but we see that bad things happen to good people. and That also is Hevel. It, it doesn't make any sense to us. It goes against our expectations. And that idea that bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people is exactly the enigma that the preacher was dealing with in the end of chapter 8. And it led him to say, Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. When Ecclesiastes speaks of God's work or what he does, it's referring to God's work of providence. Meaning it's speaking of the regular, daily working of God in the ordinary lives of men and women. And the preacher finds this work of God very confusing, because it's not what he expects. And then in chapter 9, while the preacher knows that his life is in the hand of God, he still finds the work of God very perplexing. But he knows that this tension is a reality of life, so he offers us advice. I hope you'll take the, the preacher's advice today. So I'm going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 18. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. 
Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though a poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. A brief summary to guide our study on this passage comes from Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In verse 1, the the preacher said, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. He sets up this section by telling us that he worked really, really hard to understand this truth, that the righteous and the wise are in the hand of God. And the preacher sees a paradox something that seems to be contradictory or opposed to common sense, but is actually perhaps true. This paradox, he knows that God is wonderfully good and he's sovereign over the affairs of the world and of our daily lives, but he also knows that the righteous and the wise, the people who think that they, who we think should deserve the good life, they don't always get it. And I think we can agree with the preacher that this is troubling. And he's going to go on and explain some of the things in this life that are perplexing. But you'll see that it doesn't lead him to despair. Instead, it it leads him to find the things in life that truly matter. It also leads him to learn how to live when all the things around him don't make any sense. In this section, the preacher wants us to take a good look at one thing in life that is certain our impending death. And he wants the fact of our impending death to affect the way that we live. Continuing on in verse 1, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, 
and madness is in their hearts while they live. After that, they go to the dead. So the preacher sees that no matter who we are or what we've done, death still comes to all. He says you don't know if you're going to be loved or hated, but you do know that you are going to die. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean, believers and unbelievers, all will go to the grave. And there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to death. Just because you live a life that honors God, it doesn't mean that you're going to live a long life. And I'm sure you can relate to the preacher's angst here. Sometimes death comes way too early, and we have no way of knowing when that will be. The preacher identifies this in verse 3 as an evil. In other words, from, from our perspective, it's not good. It's not the way that it's supposed to be. But knowing that our lives are in the hand of God, he goes on to explain the superiority of life to death. Verse 4. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. When you're alive, whether you're rich or poor, wise or foolish, strong or weak, you know that you're going to die. And this knowledge should cause us to consider our death and the way that we want to live. When you're dead, you no longer have the opportunity to change the way that you live. When you're dead, you can't work harder, you can't help people, and you can't enjoy this life anymore. So verse 4 says, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. Life is superior to death. The preacher knows that death is coming to all and there's no way of predicting when it will happen. You don't know if you have tomorrow, so here's some advice for how to live. Verse 7. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil in which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Now we've heard this advice from the preacher before multiple times. Uh, he's saying, go, you who are living, Enjoy life and the gifts that God has given you. Eat and drink with joy and gladness. Verse 8, take care of your appearance and look presentable. Enjoy your spouse and others you love. Work hard while you can. This is your lot. This is what God has given you as a gift. So it begs the question, what happens when we don't enjoy the gifts that God gives us? Well, first, we live a miserable, discontented life, always looking for the next better thing. But second, and I think more importantly, God isn't glorified in our lives. Uh, think of this scenario. You decide to give your son or daughter a car as a gift, and cars are, are really expensive, so they're always a generous gift. How would you feel if they responded by saying, Thanks, but actually I wanted a newer model with better features. This isn't good enough. And your child might even throw in a, why do you hate me? 
when you give a gift, you want the person receiving the gift to actually truly enjoy the gift. It would make you so happy if your son or daughter was excited to receive the car and wanted to immediately take it for a spin. And I believe this is how God the Father works in our lives. He's the giver of life and everything in it. He's saddened when we receive the good gifts of life, like money and and family, but then become discontent looking for ways to get more money and happiness. Ecclesiastes teaches us that God, our great gift giver, is honored in our lives when we enjoy the things of life as a gift. So when you can, enjoy the gifts that God has given you, for he has already approved of what you do. The preacher clearly doesn't want us to get too comfortable thinking that we can always enjoy life. He wants us to know that we'll also experience a lot of frustration. Verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. You think that the race should go to the swift, but it doesn't always. You think the strong should win the battle, but that doesn't always happen. You think a wise man will will never go hungry, but that's not always true. You think people who are really smart will make a lot of money, but some really smart people are poor. You think someone who knows a lot will have a following, but sometimes they're jerks and no one likes them. This paragraph is about the reality of the human experience. It's true that the experiences of our lives point to the idea that life is not fair. From our perspective, life is too complex to give us any guarantees one way or the other. It even seems like there's no rhyme or reason to it. As the preacher says in verse 11, time and chance happen to them all. Throughout this book, the preacher has been hammering into our heads this idea that this life and everything in it is hevel. It's fleeting, and just when you think you understand it, you attempt to grasp it, and it slips through your fingers. There's so much frustration in our lives that it's like we're living in this this fog of, of hevel. Everywhere we turn, there's some injustice or simply confusing fact of life, and and just like a fog, it disorients us. Life feels like it's up to random chance, but to God, life is never random. He is in control, and he knows what he's doing. Proverbs 3.5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. So my question to you is, do you trust God? Or are you leaning on your own understanding? When trials hit, do you trust God and his character even when you don't understand what he's doing in your life? We, we tend to think that if we follow specific rules and live wisely, work really hard, that things are going to go well for us and life will go as we planned we tend to think that we can be the determiners of the outcomes of our lives. 
But when we do that, we claim the role that only the God of the Bible has in our lives. He is the determiner of the outcomes. He knows more than us. He's perfectly good and powerful. And we're believing lies when we think that we would do it better. Even the frustrations of life are in the, are in the loving hands of God. So in light of the fact that there are many frustrations in life and that wisdom doesn't always lead to success, the preacher tells us a story about the power of wisdom and how even though it may not lead to fame and fortune, wisdom is still superior. Verse 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So this is a story that we can easily relate to. We've seen it a lot in books and movies. It's a classic underdog story. The little city minding their own business is being attacked by a great king with an army surrounding the city with weapons, but there's one man in the city who, against all odds, delivered the city. We aren't told what he did, but we are told that he did it by his wisdom. It often doesn't seem like it, but there can be great power in wisdom. I think what a perfect example of the fact that the battle doesn't always go to the strong. There's something else I want you to notice here. The hero of the story is both poor and wise. The preacher is using this story to continue to debunk the idea from verse 11 that the wise are always wealthy. This man saved his city from destruction. Surely he deserves a reward. He deserves recognition for what he did, but in verse 15 we see that that's not what he gets. It says, no one remembered that poor man. The hero of the story, the one who surely deserves recognition, is forgotten. To me, that's very frustrating. It's, frustration. it's frustrating when our expectations aren't met. The preacher doesn't say it here, but I'm sure he would agree that this is Hevel. It doesn't make any sense. Instead of being grateful for the man who saved them from destruction, the people of the city were ungrateful and they forgot their savior. Even though life-saving wisdom may soon be forgotten, the preacher still thinks that wisdom is relatively valuable. It may not make you famous or make you a lot of money, but it's certainly better than the alternative. Verse 16. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Wisdom spoken with humility may seem less impressive than the shouting of a ruler, but its effects are much stronger. 
It's the fool that thinks that he has to be a stronger personality or speak louder or use force to get people to listen to him. A wise man doesn't feel the need to do a lot of shouting. A wise man isn't on a power trip. He doesn't need to use force because a wise man knows that the results are not up to him. And when someone knows the results aren't up to them, whether it's love or hate before them, they don't feel the need to manipulate people and use people for their own gain. Wisdom is always better than the alternative. So how should we apply this fact in a world where time and chance happen to us all, where life is uncertain, where we don't know when we're going to die, where the confusion and chaos is so thick around us that it feels like we're living in a fog of heaven? How do we live wisely in this kind of a world? Sinclair Ferguson said about this passage, whose name most naturally comes to mind when we hear of a poor man full of wisdom who becomes a savior, but whose life and teaching has been neglected and rejected? Instinctively, we should think of Jesus. Jesus experienced the chaos and the suffering of this life. He unjustly died at a young age Even with his great wisdom, he was poor, trusting the Father for his daily bread. He did nothing wrong, yet he suffered greatly. But Jesus' life was, like the preacher said in verse 1, in the hand of God. Even though it seemed so unlikely and confusing to everyone around Jesus, God had a plan, and he worked out his plan perfectly. Delivering up Jesus to die as a sacrifice on the cross a poor wise man who by his wisdom delivered his people. The wisest thing that you could ever do in this life is to place your faith in Jesus Christ. When you do that, it doesn't mean that everything in life will go well for you. The preacher's already debunked that idea. But it does mean that you can enjoy the gifts of this life, which are just a shadow of the joy that we'll experience with Christ in heaven. You can learn from the Bible how to be obedient to Jesus and make open-handed decisions, knowing that the results may not go in your favor. But knowing that your life is in the hand of God, you entrust your life to him. Trusting his character, knowing that his ways are higher than your ways, and though you may not understand what God is doing in your life, you can rest in the fact of God's goodness and that he's going to make everything beautiful and it's in his time. If you have faith in Jesus, you have a hope that goes beyond life under the sun. You have a hope that goes beyond the grave. Your hope is in eternity with Christ, where the the fog of confusion in this life will lift, and it will all make sense. Please pray with me.